0: Mark Kleiman is professor of public policy at UCLA. His new book, Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know, will be published next month. His co-authors include one of tonight's panelists, Angela Hawken. He is the editor of the Journal of Drug Policy Analysis and advises local, state, and national governments on crime control and drug policy. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Mark Kleiman. Thanks to all of you. Thanks to Sokolo and Rand and UCLA for setting this up, and to my fellow panelists. I think they made me moderator as the only feasible way of shutting me up. So,
1: um,
0: so I'll, I'll introduce.
2: <laughs> that
1: would be a first.
0: Um, so, uh, so, let me introduce my colleagues. Uh, Angela Hawken is Associate Professor of Economics and Public Policy at Pepperdine, uh, and as mentioned, uh, was a student when, uh, when Jim Wilson was uh, helping with a RAND graduate school and then was his colleague at uh, Pepperdine. Um, uh, Professor Hawkins, most famous for having done the evaluation showing that uh, Prop 36, the Substance Abuse and Crime Pre- uh, Prevention Act, was a success, and then doing the evaluation showing that, no, in fact, it was a failure, and publishing, <laughs> and publishing both of those, which is a lot more than most academics have Um, and then uh, on top of that did the evaluation of the hope program in Hawaii which launched it into its national career Um, and she's done other work on corruption which we're hoping to see out in print soon Um, Mark Peterson my colleague in the uh, public policy department at UCLA is one of the nation's leading expert on uh, experts on the politics of health policy and uh, is about to publish a book called "The Time Was Ripe" uh, about the eventual passage of the uh, ACA and whether that will be passed before or after the Supreme Court strikes it down. We're all waiting to find out. Um, uh, in his in his uh, real life, he's uh, a scholar of the American presidency and teaches uh, courses on American politics uh, for the for UCLA and is also the head of the Robert Wood Johnson Scholars in Healthcare program which is one of the most uh, impressive operations of its sort a- anywhere. Um, and uh, Charlie Beck um, was uh, is the son and father of LA police officers, became chief in 2009, uh, having joined the department in 1977. Um, and I think it's uh, fair to say that when the history of Los Angeles Police Department between 1920 and 2020 is written, it will be history centered around four names, Ed Davis, Bill Parker, Bill Bratton, and Charlie Beck. Uh, and it's a great, great pleasure and honor to be on a panel with him. Um, so, the agreement was that I would throw out the first question to each of you know, our panelists. So, Charlie, you joined the department. <laughs> You joined the department, uh, sworn in, nine years after Varieties of Police Behavior and two years after Thinking About Crime. Um, So what was the influence of James Q. Wilson and his work on your life, on your understanding of your job as a police officer, and on the way you run the place?
3: You know, uh, uh, Mark, it would be be unfair and untrue to say that uh, James's work had any effect on me as a police officer because it did not. (laughs) Uh, you know, I was a, a child of the uh, '70s uh, era, Los Angeles Police Department, and and all that entailed, and and the academic side of why I did what I did, or or what the uh, what the intent of, uh, of what we were carrying out was totally lost on me. Uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually, not so much. I hope. Um, I became aware of uh, of Jim's work, uh, uh, actually, when Broken Windows came out, the article, and. And I read that, and then that that got me to go back to some of his earlier work and and uh, and I went through that and so um, as I'm forming my way of thinking about policing uh it it fell right in line uh with uh, with much of what Jim said, not all of what Jim said, but much of it, especially the pieces about the, the uh, community standards and the attachment of those community standards to their to law enforcement and the way that community standards can be enhanced by law enforcement and that law enforcement can also be enhanced by those community standards and that the uh, it is it really is the framework for community policing but it, but it's much more than that it, it's that the, the police while often are attached the responsibility for crime and what goes wrong in the city it's really the community standards that do. And, and James talks about, Jim talks about that. Um, you know, I also uh, think that it's important to say, and I know that it'll get said, uh, that much of what he wrote or what much of what he, had, that I interpret that he wrote in, in Broken, Williams, it, Broken Windows is misinterpreted. And, and I know that uh, I talked to George Kelling this weekend before I, uh, before I sat here, to to hear what George had to say, and George is the co-author of that co-author piece. of Broken Windows, and George and I had the same the same dilemma, is that we hear all the time that zero tolerance policing, the 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 uh, uh, indiscriminate enforcement of all small laws in order to to gain crime reduction, is broken windows, and it's simply not. You know, broken windows is about uh, law enforcement understanding community values and standards and tailoring their enforcement, the discretionary pieces of their enforcement, to enhance those community values and standards. And, and that's, those are very different things. And, and so a lot of times you'll see uh, police departments doing what they think is broken windows policing, you know, what they think is uh, the same thing, and it's not. What they're doing is they are actually building a divide between the the entity of the police department and the the population and and actually if you want to go back to when the police los angeles police department did zero tolerance you'd go back to uh operation hammer and and some of the things that we did in the 80s uh, to combat gang violence where we indiscriminately enforced all laws in in uh, communities that were beset by gang violence and actually what that did was draw a wedge between us and the community as a whole and that is not what broken windows was about.
0: Everybody talks about broken windows. I think, I think relatively few people know the original metaphor, yeah. which is the notion that if there's a house and somebody breaks a window and nobody fixes the window in a week, all the windows will be broken. Because basically the broken window announces nobody owns this place. Do what you like to it. Yeah. But that's um, the standards the of that was, place. Yeah. If you, if you fix the small things, you'll make a difference.
3: The right small things. The right small you things. Know, it's, it's, the broken windows is, is, you know, fixing that broken window is not going to do anything about the traffic in front of your house. But, but it will save the other windows, and, and also save, you, save the, your property from further vandalism on theory. So. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: Angela. So you were sort of Jim's student here, and then his colleague at Pepperdine. Um, so what made him different? What, what was special about? I think we all agree he was one of the most unusual thinkers in American social science in the second half of the 20th century. But what was, what was Wilson? What was Wilson about?
1: Well, many things made him different. Um, he was surprisingly good in the classroom. I'm not sure that everybody knows that about him. Uh, without any jazz hands. He felt absolutely no pressure to entertain anybody in the classroom setting. Uh, but he, he always managed to extract smart thinking from his students. My, I, I, he, was, he was the best in a truly informal setting. And he was really quite humble in that sort of environment, even on the issue of broken windows, where he would always say to my students, "You know, I know you all come here today to ask me about broken windows. Let me tell you, it's Kelling who deserves all the credit. You know, it was his ideas. And if you go back to the early literature, really, it was. Um, it was his ideas, and I just happened to be in a good place at the right time and got swept up in it. Um, but I would watch him take a comment, even if it was a really inane comment by one of my students, and move that student on a path and finally, something really brilliant would emerge from that, and the student would really feel as though they had ownership of that brilliance. Um, and I think that's true for all of us who've ever worked with him. He would make us better, and we'd think it was us. Um, I, I would, I, so many times, I'd leave a conversation with, with, with James Q. Wilson, and go, and just in that, in that moment, I'd think, God, I am brilliant. Mm. <laughs> And then hours later, it would, it would, it would just you know, occur to me that, no, 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 you had it completely wrong, Angela. Uh, he was brilliant. He just managed to inject enthusiasm into the idea that you presented him. And it was for really selfish reasons. He wanted to know the answer to the question he was hoping you would run out and research. Because he was inspired, just animated by ideas, and, and, and certainly had no lack thereof. Um, I think as as a colleague, what also made him truly unusual was his breadth. I don't know too many academics that could fill so many shoes simultaneously and so well. Um, Twice a year, he would be very generous and appear in my classrooms as a guest speaker. And it didn't matter what subject I was teaching, it could have been international aid and development, it could have been social policy, criminal policy, research methods, it just didn't matter, he could seamlessly slot in, I never had to worry about scheduling, and it didn't even matter what the exact issue was, whether it was you know, marriage, or homelessness, or, or education policy, or you know, the biological basis of crime, whatever I was teaching, he would just fall in seamlessly and have something extremely valuable to inject in the co- into the conversation. But my favorite, favorite characteristic of James Q. Wilson, and I think this is why he was such an important conservative co- scholar, was his ability to change his mind. Oh, man. And would, was he? Um, he, was, he was really passionate about empirical evidence. And I think that's how he helped move us all forward, really passionate about ideas. And even when scientific inquiry led to conclusions that made him feel uncomfortable in his gut, he let the science rule. And that was really, or oh, at least his interpretation, we, we can squabble, we do, about that interpretation. But he really was a man of science. And that was, um, that, was, that was quite remarkable. I think it's quite funny that a man that was such a policy powerhouse would have made such a lousy politician.
2: A lousy
1: politician. I mean, his ability to change his mind. Which he did. He recognized that, you know, in, in a world of changing truths, and you know, the truths we have today may not be the truths we hold next week. The best we can do is follow the data, even if it is imperfect data. Uh, next week, we'll know something we don't know today. But that—that's the best way we have for figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And he really wanted to know what worked. I think he was—he he f- he was very driven by the idea of, of greater good, greater social good. Um, so he would have been—he would have been a lousy politician, and for another reason, and that is his—and and for an academic, this is really unusual. His ability to say, "I don't know," even in an area where he was the policy expert. Can you imagine, academics saying, "I don't know"? That's—that's that's almost unheard of. Um, <laughs> James Q. Wilson, this is no secret, was right of center, and for in many areas, he was—he was way right of center. Um, but it really didn't matter you know, what his recommendations were and how you felt about them. You had to appreciate the sophistication of his argument. I mean, Many of us disagreed with him, but we took great value in what we had to say. And I think any smart man would um, t- really listen to what he said quite closely because, man, it was, he, he, he had heft. He, um, he was a th- in terms of thinking, he was a heavyweight, and that made him an outstanding colleague.
0: He once said to me that the world is divided into the people who go, but, 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 and the people who go, well, and the people who go, but, 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 but which mm-hmm. is us, are always ruled by the guys who go, well, mm-hmm. so yes, I think, I think you agree with your, <laughs> with your analysis, but I, I, think you're, I think you're absolutely right about his willingness to change his mind.
2: Right.
0: The, the, I sometimes think that, that more evil is done in the world as a result of people's desire to have been right about things and the other thing. And Jim desperately wanted to be right and didn't care at all about whether he'd been right two years ago.
1: Yeah.
0: And that that made a difference. So Mark, you you came to Harvard just before he left mm-hmm. and then came to UCLA. Um, and um, you know all the obits said he was a criminologist and the author of the Roku Windows theories. But if you'd asked Jim Wilson what he did for a living, he would have said, I'm a political scientist. That was his, that was his identification. Um, and he was an unusual political scientist. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was even an unusual conservative political <laughs> scientist. So what was that about? What's... Well,
4: there are many things. Uh, and of course, Jim was a president of the American Political Science Association, which tells you a lot about how he was respected in the field and his role in the field. What made him unusual, there are several things that made him unusual as a political scientist, and as an academic, along, many along, along the lines that has talked about, one is, is even within political science, his scope was hard to replicate by anybody else. If you study interest groups, you had to read his book on political organization, and it had uh, uh, several conceptualizations in that book that were important and live on to this day, from why it is certain organizations get uh, uh, mobilized and others don't, to what kinds of benefits uh, provide uh, or return to people when they do get uh, involved in an organization. If you uh, studied p- uh, political parties, you had to read his book, Amateur Democrats, uh, and the, the, the one of his early works, and uh, bringing to it a very fresh perspective on what it is that is going on. in at that time, uh, the new wave of more amateur uh, political party organization in a number of cities. If you're interested in regulatory policy, you had to read his work on regulation. And he took on, uh, there was a common theme for people who were antagonistic towards government about capture, that uh, private sector interests were rent seekers and that they used their political power to leverage uh, regulatory agencies, for instance, to serve their benefit, not the public good. Jim actually countered that whole notion and said capture theory is not a very effective explanation for what actually goes on in the world. If you're interested in public administration organization theory, or bureaucracy, he had to read his book on the bureaucracy. And again, a very insightful book and interesting for a, uh, what we think of as a conservative political scientist. We didn't even think about Jim really as a conservative political scientist. We thought about Jim as a political scientist who happens to be conservative. And one of the reasons on his book on bureaucracy, one of his provocative ideas was the notion that the, any sense of an, an, uh, an excessive regulation is not the result of the bureaucrats, it's a result of the American constitutional system and the multiple players that play a role in dictating to the agencies what their functions are and how they should perform, which made it very difficult for them to perform at optimal levels given their talents. I was—I uh, think yesterday I saw a clip of, of Governor Romney campaigning, and of course a campaign is a campaign, and you say certain things, but his... Wireless microphone was failing, and the battery' going, so of course he said, "Oh, those batteries must have been made by a Washington bureaucrat."
0: <laughs>
4: Jim Wilson would never have said that, not even, not even in jest. It's not He was a conservative who was skeptical about government and where government's reach could be effective or not. He was skeptical about concentrating too much power. He was very much about community and a sense of moral purpose in the community and what bound the community together in ways that often would, for liberals, seem very uh, much to the right. But it was a sense of community that, um, uh, and a sense of the, and the capacities of people with empathy to organize as a community and to use government for good purposes that make him very different from many conservatives today. Another thing about him analytically is, one, he was very data-oriented. He went where the data took him. And he did not start with a conclusion and end up there, uh, happily finding whatever facts would fit his uh, model of the world and and discarding others. He really did follow the, the data uh, uh, as much as uh, uh, one can. Uh, but he, he as a there's a part of political science that took on the ideas of microeconomic modeling that the way to understand politics is to understand people as individuals who are rational optimizers of utility. And if you aggregate that rational ap- optimization of utility, you get to a higher general welfare in the context of politics as well as economics. This was, and this is a part of the political science that tends now to be the home of, of people who are of more conservative persuasion, very market-oriented that's not the kind of conservative Jim was either. Again, he very much believed in community. He, very much believed, he was an optimist about human nature, <coughs> an optimist about how uh, the course of human development, the evolutionary process, brought forth notions of empathy, uh, notions of connectedness. And this idea that there's an atomized world in which you simply sum up the activities of individuals who are maximizing their own self-interest was just not something that fit very well with his notions. Uh, So he was a conservative of the old order, a skeptic of too much government, concerned about the possibilities of um, extending uh, the reach of the state too far, and also conservative in the sense his understanding of community was a community of order and a community in which the laws are are necessary in such a way to maintain that order, which again, against the themes of the 60s and 70s, might have put him uh, uh, well to the right in many people's perspectives, but it was part of the sense of an empathetic community uh, working together. All that made him extraordinarily unusual. The breadth, the uh, degree to which he was an empirical political scientist very deeply, not in the modern sense of collecting a lot of quantitative data and crunching large numbers and doing advanced multivariate modeling, which we would teach in our program and taught at Party graduate school here, but in the sense of being very connected to facts on the ground. A, 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 a remarkable capacity to delve into the, the rich texture of, of empirical life and bring that to the fore in the work that he did.
0: So, in one respect, it seems to me, Jim departed from all that. His work on crime, uh, which was certainly a fire bell in the night to me, right? I mean, I've been thinking about crime, you know, as a committed liberal, and said, whoops. Yes, we were wrong about that one. And the argument I'm thinking about crime is that crime is a terrible problem. It's especially a terrible problem for poor people. And under-enforcing the law is a very bad idea. And we need more aggressive policing and more policing. And we need some cells to put the people that the police catch. And so he was certainly as responsible for anybody in the academic world for taking us from half a million people behind bars to. 2.4 million people behind bars. A huge expansion of state power uh, and of the power of public agencies that a conservative, you would have thought, would have been skeptical about. Um, And look, I was along along for a lot of that ride. I'm I'm certainly carrying my share of guilt for having said we needed more prisons in 1980. Um, Like a lot of people in that movement, I eventually wound up saying it was sort of like the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Does this thing have an off switch? (laughs) Um, And I have to say, at the very end, Jim identified mass incarceration as a social problem equivalent to crime, Mm -hmm. which the audience for the Ronald Reagan lecture at the Ronald Reagan Library probably weren't expecting to hear. (laughs) Still in all, um, he did support a rather unconservative expansion of state power. It turned out to be sort of a bad mistake. I mean, probably not compared to the inadequate level of enforcement we had in 1975. But I haven't, I haven't worked through the, the issues about that.
3: Well, well, Jim believed, I mean, he's one of the first people that postulated incapacitation. I mean, the <clears> fact, <throat> fact that, that, that there is a benefit to locking people that commit crime up because while they're locked up, they don't commit crime. So, uh, you know, this was, this was actually a, pretty forward-thinking idea at the time. It, it seems very common sense now.
0: As opposed to the deterrence idea.
3: Right. Just exactly. to lock people up well, in order to be, show people you shouldn't do that stuff. Right, exactly, as a demonstration. So, and and while, uh, while there may be a deterrence factor, I think he actually sided on the incapacitation side.
0: Data-driven again.
3: Data-driven again, of course. So, you know, as always, you know, the pendulum swings. So now your question is, has it gone too far, and where, where, where would we find the right point? And you know, I think that's always the struggle, uh, especially in a in a society that, that loves to uh, overdeliver in a lot of ways. You know, um, where is the right point? And and I, and I, I ask that as a question, not because I know right. the answer.
1: I think James Q. really loved community, and to the extent that criminals were in the community, hurting sons and daughters of families, that bothered him. And I think he did believe. I mean, he he never really he never bought the deterrence argument uh, about prisons. But I really do believe he had a heartfelt think. He felt that inca- 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 the incapacitation function of prisons was worth it at the time. Um, you know, I think in a lot of his writing, we would say the typical inmate would have committed fifteen or sixteen crimes that year. And to me, that's worth it. I'm quoting him now. To me, that, that that's a good. And he says, our cost benefit analyses never take into consideration the string of crimes that would have been committed. Now, I think he took that too far. I think he'd ne- and he was actually at that time really promoting relatively long sentences. Um, I think what he didn't take into, into account was really the crime age cycle, right? That you start to age out of your criminal activity. After the age of 40, criminals tend to look quite different. You know, they they get, kind of get bored of this and want to do something else. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that he, but I think he ultimately became, so re- I really think it was a heartfelt pre- response, he felt some responsibility. To the community, and given probation and parole was failing, there was no community supervision alternative to incarceration that really made sense. I think he thought that that was the the right thing to do. And I think we helped bring him around. But us and others, people like us that were doing other work on, well, there are really alternatives to incarceration that might have legs. There are ways to keep people in the community behaving in a way that keeps your community that you care about so safe. And we we were just toying with those ideas, but I think those ideas helped move him in the direction of thinking, wow, maybe I was wrong on incarceration. Maybe we do do too much of it. He was never in favor of much incarceration for drug users. For for, for, it, it's not true for those who had played down for more serious crimes, but for possession only, where, where the underlying crime really was possession only, he was never in favor of the lock-em-up, throw-away, the
4: key. I was going to ask you about that because that's been such a, 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 a force behind the massive increase in incarceration over the last two decades.
0: Right. Less than people think. Yeah. Yeah. The, oh, particularly
4: yeah. in California. Huh? Yeah, particularly, particularly in California. About about twenty percent
0: of the American prison population is in for drug charges. Mm-hmm. More in for doing stuff to get drugs. Mm-hmm. But it really hasn't been true that the drug war has been driving the increase in incarceration. The big increase in incarceration has come from violent crime, mm-hmm. very very long sentences, and everybody thinks that's a good idea. But a fifty year old who was a violent criminal at twenty five, you're not preventing <laughs> much crime by keeping him in. I mean, serious crime has about the same age structure as serious basketball.
4: <laughs> I still play basketball. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it would
0: be. Seems to me, we were reading, thinking about crime, he really was buying into deterrence back then. Basically, I think he was influenced by Gary Becker's you know economics of yeah. crime stuff, and the the striking move is crime and human nature. We suddenly ask the question, why, not, why do some people find it rational to commit crime? But why do some people commit crime even though it's grossly not rational for them? And he, got, he and de Kernstein got a lot of static for that, for looking at the biological basis of crime. It seems to me that they've been pretty well vindicated. Um, who else has thoughts? Or should we turn it over to the crowd?
3: Well, you know, I did want to comment on yes. one thing that Angela said because because this came when when I met Jim and and when I talked to to Dr. Kelling about their relationship. Extremely self-effacing, especially for somebody that you know, which to me is is the ultimate good character trait, is to is to be very very credible, to be very effective, but to be modest about it. And he and he constantly tried to give credit. Yeah. Uh, and and George said that you know, broken windows the. The metaphor was his. The request to, to to write was his, and but he gave credit to George. And when, that's an amazing thing, especially in a profession that survives by getting credit for ideas. Right. So uh, I mean, that's giving away the most valuable thing in your profession.
1: Right. One other comment before we move to audience. I think it was really fascinating to watch him struggle with the evidence on the biological basis of a crime. That was the body of evidence I saw him feel the most uncomfortable about. I mean, what do you do with that? It's such a, That's a horrible literature. I mean, your destiny is almost predetermined on your day of birth. Nothing well-meaning fathers and mothers can do to change your outcomes. Now, if your ears are a certain way, or your fingers or your toes are a certain way, your parents have a genetic line towards something, a predisposition p- disposition between, you know, towards Alcohol or drug addiction or, or you know, gambling or, or, or snowboarding—you know—you're born with that set of genes, and it made him really uncomfortable. What do we, as policymakers, do with the fact that so many of the kids in our courtroom were predestined to be there? It's such an unhappy finding. And, and his response to that was, "Well, you know, we can't take away—you know—that we, we can't take away the fact that we still get to make decisions. You know, even if you sit, you're born with yep. an unha- unhappy hand, at the end we decide what we." what we do with that hand, and, and we have to teach those people, spend more time on them, coaching them on making good decisions, but that we could never use that in court of law. And, but it's made him really uncomfortable.
4: But the other side of that, too, was that he was, on the biological side, which makes everybody uncomfortable on these things, was the sense of posing the question, why aren't more people criminals? It's really quite astonishing how much social order grows out of a natural sense of... of how people evolve, and how they form communities, and, and how pe- there are so many people who do the right thing even when someone's not watching. Mm-hmm. And that that's really more the innate center of gravity of, of the society when, in fact, why is it not more chaotic and, mm-hmm. and, and more criminal? And so the, now, once you start getting gene- the genetic markers that emerge uh, that lead to identifying particular individuals as having that predisposition, that becomes very... That's the unhappy side right. of the development of... Uh, of but
0: that's, that's the point that, that uh, the chief was making about community policing.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, most of the job of crime control is not done by formal social control. It's done by informal social control. Mm-hmm. As, as David Kennedy likes to say, a lot more people grow up afraid of their mother than afraid mm-hmm. of the police. Mm-hmm. That's right. <laughs> that's,
3: <true>. that's, right. <laughs> that's the absolute proof to that
0: theory. Yeah. And, the, and the question is how to mobilize that and right. how to, to use policing to enable the community to do its job of crime control. I mm-hmm. mean, um, the, other, the other way that, that, that Jim's sort of humility showed up was his willingness to embrace stuff that disagreed with him. Yeah. You know, I mean, I spent, you know, look, he was in some ways my mentor about crime. Um, and I wrote a book that's uh, basically a 250-page attack on thinking about crime. And he gave it the best write-up anybody gave it. That um, was just, just the kind of human being he was. Mm-hmm. And I think it goes along with, with Angela's point about, about his teaching. There's, there's a certain kind of teacher, well, there's a typical kind of teacher who tries to be brilliant all the time. <laughs> and then there's the rare kind of teacher who makes the students feel brilliant. Um, and I've, I was subjected to a couple of those you know, who are capable of palming off their brilliant ideas on students like a, a card magician palming off the eight of spades on a mark, and it was done to me re- successfully many times before I was joint teaching with people like that and realized, oh no, that's, oh, no, that's a trick.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and and Jim was the ab- Jim, Jim, and Phil Hyman are the absolute masters of it, um, and it's a it's a great gift, but it relies on the humility. I, I don't know whether where there's a supply of that that no. I could buy, but but it's. I haven't, I haven't found it. Questions? I think we can start to be stimulated by the audience. We may, <laughs> we may, we may discover we have longer things to say at length. <laughs> I understand there is a strong incidence of crime families, if you will. Father, son, grandson, all arrested,
4: sometimes by the police, same police officer. How does that fit into? This theory and, and I, this biological basis is totally new to me.
3: Well, at first that's true. There, there are uh, uh, famous families uh, or infamous families. Uh, almost every place, every part of Los Angeles I ever worked in had those families. Uh, you know, just like my family is a police family, and your family may have a may have a profession or a trade that is followed. I, I think I think it's almost natural part of the way that. People are brought up on what they see, and I think in in the in the biological theories that that uh, Jim put forward, uh, he accounts for that. And I and I, I think that it is also I mean it's troubling the the biological factors, but it's also the place where you put your resources. And I mean the survey instruments that that we develop for young people uh, are really important. You know, one of the one of the singular successes. Uh, in Los Angeles is the uh, gang reduction youth development programs that have a survey instrument that they use on uh, or use on is probably a bad word administer to uh, individuals that are interested in in, uh, becoming part of an anti-gang program uh, young people and this survey is hundreds of questions to determine your risk factors and and with the limited amount of money that the city has to spend on its uh, prevention intervention programs we just target the money at those with the highest risk factors. No matter what your desire is, or no matter what your parents' thoughts are, if you aren't enough at risk, then then we can't put the money in uh, towards you. And I think that's the way you have to look at this, especially in in, a, in times when when really government does not have the funding that it used to have. You got to put it where it makes the most sense, and and that's what well actually what Broken Windows is about too is that is that there are, there are communities that have tipping points. And, and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of communities that it, the police are like an ancillary function. You know, we're, we're there as, as part of the community, but the community would be pretty much like it is even if we weren't there, you know? But, and then there's communities where, you know, the, the police are, uh, are overtasked in that community. And maybe, you know, we make some difference, but not what we could. And then there's the communities that are at the tipping point. <coughs> And that's where Jim, in particular, said you should put footbeats, you should put community officers, you should put uh, police officers that fit into the fabric in order to take those places off the tipping point and put your resources there. Don't put them into places where you make little difference or, or you can make no difference. Put them where it makes the most sense. And I think that's the way government has to think now.
1: And I think, I think the genetic. Information we have now doesn't diminish the role of the family at all. Um, You can really think of a a spectrum on which, you know, your predisposition towards criminal activity or towards drug addiction or towards obsessive gambling, whatever you're looking at, it's really a spectrum. And those on the far left-hand tail are are really not vulnerable. Uh, It doesn't matter what family they're raised in; they're probably not going to go out there and and go on a crime spree anytime soon. And the right-hand side of that tail. Probably no matter how nice mom and dad are, and mom and dad can do the right thing. It's like, I mean, you probably know people who have had been wonderful parents, and something really, a really sad outcome happens for those children. I mean, it might be a drug overdose or a crime involvement where you're stunned to see that that happens to that family. It just didn't matter. There was probably enough of a predisposition to begin with that that was going to tip. But there's a very large middle ground where children might be born with a predisposition towards something, but the right environmental circumstances nurture them in a way that those predispositions never manifest. And that the child is therefore saved this unhappy life of crime or drug addiction. And I think that's where, also, he was so, so in love with the idea of family. And good parents, intact families, looking after the children. And that's really thought, what he thought of as the role of marriage, was to keep children protected. Um, and, and I, th- I, think, I think some of us might be amused, if you've ever read some of his, some of his work on marriage, his window of, of concern was much more during child-rearing phase than later on. In one of his writings, he said, you know, in, in the 1700s and 1800s, men and women were married for at most 20 years, and then they died. Now we stuck together for half a, half a century. He said, we just, we, we just might not like each other as much in 40 years out than we did 20 years out, and that might explain the difference. But I think he really saw the value of family during those, those, those child-raising years for those... Particularly for those who are vulnerable to tipping, that might not otherwise.
0: Yeah, but it's, Question on your it's right. We're saying that the the heritability of crime doesn't demonstrate that that's largely genetic, right? So, Charlie, you're from a police family. I doubt you have police genes, <laughs> I, right? There's a police tradition
3: well I, and I, I think you're right and but but I think again, to angela's point I, I have uh, three children uh two are police officers uh, one is uh, a mother and in, in, in school to be a teacher. she would make the world's worst police officer and I think my uh, but so it is not only dear Jeanette and my, my wife is probably many of you know is a sheriff's deputy, so I mean if you you know, if, if there was ever a combination of parents that would produce police genes, it would probably be up. Uh, although I will, the blue is the dominant color.
0: So, so here's, something, here's something we actually know about predisposition. It's my, one of my favorite social science experiments. Take a group of four-year-olds. Put them at a table. Put a marshmallow in front of each four-year-old. And say, I'm going to leave the room for ten minutes. When I come back, everybody who still has his marshmallow in front of him gets a second marshmallow, and you can eat both. But if you eat the marshmallow while I'm gone, that's all you get. And the four-year-olds understand that they'd rather wait the ten minutes and have two marshmallows. And some can, and some can't.
3: And some eat the other marshmallows. (laughs) And then they get three.
0: It turns out... It turns out that eating your marshmallow is the strongest predictor we know of going to prison.
5: Governor Brown's AB-109 program for realignment. What your thoughts are of the
4: costs and benefits of you know, saving money for the state, releasing the less violent felons to go to the jails that will be released early?
3: First of all, it's a, it is a uh, grand experiment that is uh, grand in scale. Not, I'm, not, I'm not a particular fan of it. Uh, grand experiment that is is uh, barely barely started, uh, and it is a huge cost saver for the state. However, it is not a cost saver for the counties or the cities, and so it is a deferred cost, um, which somebody is going to pay, and that that payment is going to come from uh, locals instead of the state. Now, will we in fact be able to do a better job than the state? I don't know yet. Uh, we're trying, uh, but it, it is not work that is going to get undone. You know, it is not uh, a significant amount of people that, that won't be in prison. They'll just be in county jail. And so, you know, that's the, that's the fallacy. I mean, it works, it works very well in the state uh, from, from the state's point of view, and we will see how it works out at the county and the city point, at county and the city. Point of view, we're still we're still working through this. Uh, you know, we just did a, uh, a a really large study on four cities in California, and you know what what the status of probation and parole and res- and uh, recidivism and and uh, and the risk factors involved and whether or not the risk factors have been properly evaluated pre realignment. So now we have to do it post. You know, this is something that it. I hate doing things this way where you have to, to learn on the fly, but that's literally what realignment is. There, there wasn't an overarching plan. It was dropped on us, and now we have to figure it out, which we will do. But uh, I would have preferred it done a little more academically.
1: Yeah, I, I rarely have nice things to say about California, which separates me from James Q. I love the place. Um, LAUGHTER we tend to act. We, we tend to think small and act big in California, and this is another example of that. I think they really should have experimented this at a, with a small scale, with a number of counties, and seen how it works. Because I haven't seen any magic in what's going to happen in realignment that's going to make it any different than the just shifting the back from Sacramento to all of our counties. I really just, I, I just don't see how this is going to be the miracle solution. There's not enough change in business as usual. This also comes at the same time as one of my favorite bad decisions out of Sacramento, which is um, non-revocable parole. As, and this is how it works. Well, it
3: non-revocable parole, which is a, that, that's a, the only positive thing is this eliminates non-revocable <laughs> parole. <laughs> but, but, now but they're non-revocable it's replaced
1: by another. Exactly. Um, so the it idea.
3: your probation
0: officer's orders are polite hints. Yeah.
1: Well, well the, the well, idea is that. that if we don't see you them don't doing it, one. if we don't watch them doing it, then at least they won't go back to jail or prison. So in the meantime, it's okay for you to just go run wild in our communities and do what you want. Nothing's going to happen to you and therefore solve the prison problem. How is that a good solution? Um, n- there's no meaningful transformation to business as usual that's going to make realignment be a winner for California, I think. And I hope I'm wrong. And I'll change my mind, as would James Q have, if you show me the data. Well, but and in I, even, I'm I even doubt
0: it it's a winner for the state in more than, th- than a 12-month period. And I base this on Professor Hawkins' work on Prop 36, mm. which is a huge winner for the state in the first year because you didn't send people to prison. And then what happened?
1: They all go
3: back. It catches up.
0: They all went back, right? So you weren't you weren't watching them on probation. They committed new crimes. They went to prison.
1: Right. So be very careful when you do do your post study. Don't ever study anything one year out. It's called the honeymoon period. Everything looks good one year out. Three. It's like a marriage. It's the honeymoon, right? Everything's great. It's year one. Go back at year three, year four, year five, and see how it's looking.
0: And the, the problem with, with with AB 109 is that yeah, it moves the cost to the counties. But only the cost of jail and probation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the ideal thing for a county to do is wait for the guy to commit an armed robbery, so they can send him off to state prison yeah. at the state's expense. It's just, it's a complete kludge. There's no way it will end except in well, tears. And,
3: yeah. then yeah, And the, the funding that was—I mean—they they took a uh, uh, you know a, a hundred billion dollar program and, and and are trying to fund it with with a third of that and. It's not going to work. I mean, it isn't going to work on the same level. You're not going to get the same thing from the county that you did from the state. Now, will can are some counties going to do better? Yes. Are some counties going to do worse? Yes. You know, is that the way you want it? Is is do you want um, you know public safety uh, <laughs> cut up in that finite increment? Wouldn't it? It makes more sense to the state level.
0: Yeah, I mean, if I'd been running it. I would have said, okay, the, the costs of jail and probation are on the county, and the county is going to get billed for the prison cells. So, you know, your, your DA wants to put a notch on his belt by getting some pizza thief a 25-year term? That'll be $1 million, please. <laughs> and Because AB 109 does nothing to control the front end. There's nothing to control arrest, there's nothing to control prosecution, does nothing to control yeah. sentencing. Um, you know, you you could have done something. But it doesn't look like they were thinking past the next budget cycle.
5: To what extent has uh, broken windows and community policing changed the way police departments uh, actually conduct their business around the country? And can we point to those changes as the reason why crime has fallen
3: in this country for the last, you know, 12 to 15 years? Well, um, I, I think that's an important piece of it, it it's, it's uh, community policing, uh, the, the the recognition of uh, law enforcement's role in enforcing community standards of behavior that aren't strictly tied to the seven part one crimes, you know, I, I think that's been an important piece of, uh, of the crime reduction over the last, well, actually, you know, it's been the last 20 years, really. Uh, but it's not the only piece. You know, there there are a number of significant factors. Uh, one is uh, is uh, better policing through data. You know that that's, can't be ignored. Uh, we you know we are very data driven in our deployment of police officers and our strategies. That makes a big difference. Uh, one is the uh, death of the crack epidemic. That was huge. That cannot be underemphasized. Uh, another. Uh, for specifically for California and and more specifically for for Los Angeles is a huge reduction in gang crime gang crime is violent crime in California is violent actually is violent crime in Los Angeles you know it's 60 percent of our homicides 25 percent of our our uh, traditional violent crime Uh, reducing that has had a huge impact so it's a number of things Uh, I think that that uh, Dr. Wilson's work is huge because it doesn't just talk about community policing. It doesn't just talk about broken windows. You know, it covers much more than that. If, you know, if you read his um, uh, Theories in Policing, the 65 book, uh, Strategies in Policing.
0: Okay. Uh, varieties of Police Behavior.
3: Yeah. Varieties of Police Behavior talks about all of this in, in a lot of different ways. And, and so, you know, I think that, that, that uh, he framed a lot of, uh, a lot of mm-hmm. the, the house that we live in right now.
0: Uh, Speaking of being data-driven, when I was raving to Jim about the crime collapse that started in 1994 and how this was all due to the brilliant policing, he said, let's look at the data. And we looked at some cities, I won't mention any current cities, um, that had not had brilliant policing at the time. (laughs) And they were getting the same crime decline as New York was. Um, And so, yeah... He, he he was a lover of policing, and he thought policing mattered. He wanted to do it right, but you looked at the data. There was clearly national stuff going on that was not reducible to.
3: Well, and it's not solely reducible. I think that now, I think that right now, is the time when you will see, and well, actually, you can see if you look yes. right now at crime, right now, in big cities in America, and last year, you start to see cities bottoming out and going the other way, and so now you'll see. Because there were factors, the ones that I discussed, the, the crack epidemic, the, right. all of that, that had a huge impact on crime also. But now you'll see the cities that, uh, that will, will continue to reduce crime. It seems to me that if Dr. Wilson's approach to incarceration was not about deterrence
0: or rehabilitation, but about keeping criminals from per, uh, committing more crimes, that he would be indeed in favor of the death penalty. Is that true,
3: and do you think he would maintain that view today? Well, well, he was in favor of the death penalty. He
0: was. He was one of the very few people in criminology um, who, well, who resisted the consensus that it was ineffective. Um, He didn't go so far as to claim that there was data showing that it was effective. Um, And I think he approved of it on moral grounds.
3: As do a bunch of folks.
0: As do a bunch of folks. I have to say, I was, I was half persuaded on the moral side. Um, what's clear to me, and now I'm speaking for me, not for, for Jim, is that given the number of executions in this country, there's no way that capital punishment could be a substantial part of the solution to the crime problem. And so even though I sort of believe in capital punishment as a, as a moral principle, whenever I hear a politician endorsing it, I vote against him. Because, no, because he's trying to sell a phony solution. We, we cannot execute our way out of the problem. Um, but yes, he was certainly uh, different from most criminologists
5: in, in his attitudes. The way you framed it, it sounded like he was a, uh, forgive me, uh, a Richard Reardon Republican. And, and so I, I, I'm curious, in, uh, uh, in, in, in terms of today's politics, without being partisan. Um, how he would address, say, the, the, the issue that you mentioned in terms of how one looks versus uh, um, a good public policy um, or th- that community matters, one w- wants to be conservative, but, but that spending money for community works. I was wondering how he would navigate, say, uh, in terms of Republicans to, to sh- reshape it in that way. He,
4: he would be, uh, I think, uh, comp- uh, feel compatible with uh, the Republican conservative discourse about debt. He considered public finance to be an area in which morality mattered, and to uh, spend excessively would be a violation of that sense of moral purpose and order in the society. On the other hand, there's much that's going on today within the discourse nationally, uh, in which there are relative there there are a number of things that are, uh, that uh, reject what the consensus position is in science and what the consens- consensus position may be on an evidentiary base. And I think Jim would reject that pretty out of hand, that he would really be very, very uh, concerned about people arriving at strong conclusions driven more by ideology than driven by, uh, by facts and evidence. I would have loved to have had a conversation with him over the last couple of years about health care reform, for instance. I know he wouldn't be a major proponent of that kind of government expansion, but my guess is that his arguments would be rooted far more in notions of what would work, how bureaucracies function, and uh, and the kind of and, and look at the international comparison data to see how we might solve this problem in a more pragmatic way than to simply uh, reject something as Obamacare or reject something as uh, a climate uh, uh, change hoax or various other things that we now see as as part of the political discourse. He'd be a very uh, much more savvy. Much more uh, old-fashioned, conservative in those terms about really judging uh, the nature of change and how and what evidence you need to move forward.
0: And, and as you said earlier, of all his attitudes, hatred of government was not on the list. Right. Yeah. Right. He just—I can't imagine that he would be in favor of a party <laughs> that says government's always bad. Right. Right. Um, But I don't think he ever spoke out about the Tea Party jihad.
2: (laughs) I was a student of Jim's from the early 70s on through the rest of my life, and apparently his as well. About 10 years ago, I'm not exactly sure, it's hard to tell the time in California, Um, he was honored by AEI at the annual prom which is the biggest gathering of an elite group of conservatives. And I think actually Jim was uneasy with the title conservative so much. Uh, And when he gave his speech, he said, if you really want to do something about crime, you put all your money into programs for single mothers. It was such a delight for him to say that to this (laughs) crowd of people including many Supreme Court justices, who clearly didn't want to put all their money into anything remotely like that, that it, it, uh, it bespeaks what, what you were just saying, Mark, about how um, he wasn't quite sure about things, how he does change. And also, he, he took a lot of joy in thinking about things in a different way. <laughs>
0: Thank
1: you. On, on, that, on that issue, I, I think really, again, it's just another example of how he was following the data. There is no known criminal justice intervention that gives you a better return on your money than nurse than nurse home visitation of at-risk mothers. Uh, there's, no, there's no better cost-benefit analysis result that we know of. And he, uh, you know, he, he knew that, and um, I'm not surprised that he would have started an address in that way.
4: Yeah, and, and also to emphasize, again, in a sense, the reaction to the Tea Party Jihad is, what we've seen is a rise in the Republican ranks and conservative ranks of a hardy philosophy that's been there for a long time, but uh, a more, more robust now, which is a libertarian streak, very individualistic, and a sense of uh, individual freedom of, of choice uh, no matter the consequences. Let people rise as high or fall as low as they're going to on their own uh, uh, characteristics. And I think that just that level of individualism, ran contrary to Jim's notion of what, what it meant to have a community. And if you read his work on moral character and moral sense, again he, he plays to the role of empathy. And empathy stands in opposition to a world of, of every individual uh, for his or her own self. And this is really where a lot of conservative politics, I think, have moved today. And it's become very resonant. We have a budget Chair in the House of Representatives, who was a student of Ayn Rand. I don't think Jim Rand, Jim Wilson was an Ayn Rand conservative by any stretch of the imagination.
0: But, but he was. I mean, I think what kept him on the red team, um, <laughs> um, having been, as he used to remind me, one of Hubert Humphrey's advisors in 1968, yes, right, um, was a deep belief, not unrelated to having been at Harvard in the 60s, of the importance of hierarchy. Of respect for superiors and a strong reaction against equality Uh, and you know on that point I just found myself on the other side of the Gulf.
4: But again going back to his experience at Harvard in the 60s it wasn't just as an observer of society or as a political scientist he was also chair of the government department and he was one of the people in the ranks of Harvard who was contending with what yeah. they viewed as the, you know, this almost... Um, the vertical barbarians. Yes, and the, and the, the violation of the sacrosanct. And uh, again, I, I didn't share Jim's reaction to that, uh, and, uh, but I think that's part of what personally created in him this, this, this greater need for a sense of order and seeing things that he cherished put under, uh, under threat by the, the outrageous, uncivil... Uh, uh, undignified, ungentlemanly activities of uh, many of the students at the time.
5: I'm curious how you see the relationship of mental health issues with the criminal portion of of the issues we're dealing with. At one point, we had some significant, very real problems with our our mental health uh, institutions, and so we took care of that by eliminating those institutions (laughs) or much of those institutions. Now that we've moved a large portion of the criminal element back into the community, of course, those will be solved. Uh, Or or not, because we don't have institutions there to address those. I I spent a considerable amount of time in in Sweden and they have, within the community, supported by local community councils, small groups where they fund a business that people attend, interact with each other, are self-supportive and and to some extent self-caring, and a modest intervention by mental health workers that address, not specifically criminal-oriented, but addressing a a very substantial portion of the mental health issues. Are are there things that we could be doing that would uh, have a significant impact on both mental health issues broadly and the criminal portion of that?
3: Well, you know, the only thing that that I would say is what we did to mental health uh, 20 years ago is what we're doing to the prison system now. I mean, we realigned mental health and we we pushed it all from from a centrist perspective onto the communities and they've been unable to handle it. Uh, yes, there are many things we could be doing uh and are not um you know the unfortunately, county jail has become mm-hmm. the uh this this uh, society 's answer to health problems, mental health problems mm-hmm.
0: and leebbach likes to say he runs the largest mental hospital in the world <laughs> he, he does he does, he does. He does. Yes, that's right. and that 's more generally true yeah. that the the criminal justice system gets everybody who's sick. If you really wanted to run public health in this country, you'd focus on the jails, because all the sick people come through the jails. Um, And instead, we let them be breeding grounds for things like TB and hepatitis C. Um, And that's the kind of issue that I wish Jim Wilson were still around to think about. So thanks to all of you. And let's look forward to the reflection.